0: Turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 4. We're continuing our series in Luke. And um, we remember back in Luke 4.18, a couple weeks ago, um, the bare outline of Jesus' self-understanding that he proclaimed in Nazareth. You may remember he said, I came to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. But Jesus uh, reveals uh, his, his own self-understanding, he declares why he came and it begins to work itself out right here in our passage this morning in Luke four thirty-one through 37. Um, you remember at his baptism, he's empowered with the Holy Spirit. And he comes into contact now in this passage <clears throat> with a man who has an unclean spirit. The one empowered by the spirit comes into conflict with one who has an unclean spirit. A demon, if you will. And Luke reveals to us here in this passage in a new and powerful way that through Jesus' preaching, his purity, and his power, that he's not only brought into conflict with demons, but he destroys the power of demons and the power of darkness. So let's read Luke 4, 31 through 37. It says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I'm sure it was probably more like a screech or a high-pitched yell. Have you come to destroy us? And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Father, now we pray, O God, that you would illuminate our understanding through the power of your Spirit, that we may get a picture of that power that is still as much alive today as it was back then. Lord, these stories can be dull to us who have heard them many times, removed as we are by centuries, but we pray that you would make it fresh to us, convict our hearts and convince us of the truth that you came to defeat the power of darkness. Lord, we thank you now. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, of Jesus' outline of what he came to do, we could categorize this as Jesus giving freedom to the oppressed. And that's what it means to be possessed by a demon. It's certainly oppression. And it says that Jesus went down to Capernaum of Galilee, and Capernaum was a town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was 680 feet below sea level, and it was a major trade and uh, economic center in the North Galilean region. And it became the hub for Jesus' Galilean ministry. So if you want to think about um, Capernaum as the headquarters of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, that was the location that his ministry was headquartered. And as we noted last week, um, Jesus was above all a preacher. It says that he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus was above all a preacher, an amazing preacher. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, it says here he was teaching on the Sabbath. Uh, isn't there a difference between preaching and teaching? Yes and no. Preaching is teaching encapsulated in a sermon or a message inspired, uh, meant to inspire us to action. So that's what preaching is. Preaching is teaching but it's meant to inspire us to respond to the word of God. And so Jesus' ministry was one in which he traveled the countryside and he preached in synagogues, villages, and open fields. You might think of George Whitefield, uh, an early colonial American preacher who went around towns and villages and hamlets and open fields preaching the word of God. Well, his model was Jesus himself, And Jesus' preaching was so well known that his fame often preceded him. Later on in the gospel accounts, people hear Jesus' coming and they run out to meet him. They've heard of the miracles that he's performed and so their requests are predicated on things that they've heard, rumors and stories about his great power. And no one like Jesus had ever before graced the shores of Galilee in Judea and Samaria. No one, no one, absolutely no one had done what Jesus was doing. No one had preached the way Jesus was preaching. No one had spoke with such power and authority. He was the first of his kind, really the only of his kind. He was unique, absolutely unique, and no one had ever seen anything like it he came preaching with power and as a quick aside the reason preaching is so important then and now is because the bible says in romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god it's one of the reasons why we put our sermons online so if you've missed sunday morning you can hear the word of god Um, because there's a power in hearing the word of God preached and expounded. And we get that from Jesus' own ministry. So the authority of Jesus was mind-blowing. It blew people's minds. In verse 15, uh, earlier on the chapter, it says, He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled. And now here in verse 32, it says, "...they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority." So everywhere he went, he blew people away, they marveled, they were astonished, they were shocked, they were even at sometimes dismayed at the power of his preaching. And time and again, the Pharisees would say, "...by what authority are you doing these things?" because people would listen to him and he spoke with such authority because he didn't preach and teach like the rabbis did what the rabbis would do is they would quote the teachers of Jesus's day they would quote you know they would they would they would it would be an appeal to an appeal to authority right so they would appeal to some earlier scholar or rabbi or authority to kind of make the case for their argument for what they were saying in fact today in seminary students have to appeal to secondary sources. If you write a paper, you know, on a thesis from a passage of Scripture, you have to demonstrate that other scholars throughout the church's history of interpretation agree with you, because if you've got some new observation in 2,000 years, you know, the first time in 2,000 years of church history, people get nervous, you know. But Jesus didn't need that. He was the authority. He was God's wisdom manifest in the flesh he was the personification of eternal knowledge and power he didn't need to appeal to the rabbis or go to the rabbis they needed to come to him and on this occasion the convicting force of the lord's preaching hit strangely enough a demon Um, it's as if police are going house to house warning people about robbers you know, because there's been home burglaries, and as they're walking up to one house, you know, the robber is coming out the front door, and he's caught red-handed. That's, what ha- that's what's happening here in the synagogue. Jesus is preaching powerfully the kingdom of God, and what do you know? There's a man in the service with a demon. And it says, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice. Now, you know it's really bad if he was an unclean demon, you know. He wasn't just a demon, he was an unclean demon, you know. So it's really bad. Um, but he cried out with a loud voice. Um, and it recognizes, the demon recognizes who it is that's preaching. And in verse 34, it says, ha, you know, um, what have you to do with us, Jesus? And I looked at that word and I said, you know, ha. And what does that mean, ha? But if I can, if I can just uh, illustrate what that ha was like, it would have kind of been like, you know, it would have been like, ha, you know, like that. You know, the demon sees Jesus, hears Jesus' preaching, and, you know, the feeling is, is more like, you know, ha. And the reason is this. Let me unpack this for a minute. Jesus has existed for all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. As the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, enthroned in heaven before time. This demon, like all demons, are fallen angels. Which means that at one time in ages past, this demon worshipped... This is a plausible argument. Before the throne in heaven where Jesus was as the pre-incarnate eternal word. And so here's this demon in this man and in this synagogue. He sees in the face of this man Jesus, the one who he's recognized from eternity past. And he's terrified. And he says, have you come to destroy us? He's got no question about Jesus' capabilities. There is no doubt in his mind who Jesus is and what he can do. He says, have you come to destroy us? And the demon is terrified, not only because he knew who Jesus was, but he knew Jesus' purpose. In 1 John 3.8, we get a glimpse of that purpose it says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. That's the purpose that Jesus came. So the demons are startled. The demon is startled by his preaching. And the demon is also startled by his purity. The absolute holiness of Jesus' character. Brings him into conflict with demons. And the demon says this. He says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Instead of insulting Jesus, he's compelled to confess you're the Holy One of God. You know, there's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That time will come. It's not happening yet, but it's it's it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. And the demon is confronted with Jesus and he can't help it. He is compelled to confess who Jesus is. I like to think of I was trying to think about purity and impurity and just you know the impact that one sinless person, that Jesus who was the only sinless person, the impact he would have had walking among sinners and, and wicked people. And, you know, forgive me for the analogy, but I thought of like Paul olive, what Paul olive, a drop of, you know, dish detergent does in a grease pan. You, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you've got your grease pan and it's filled with water, maybe and some grease. And you drop that because it's so, it's just, it's so powerful and you drop it in the pan and all of the grease just goes boom. It just, I mean, it's like a nuclear explosion blasting everything backwards. And that's what Jesus was. He was so holy, he was the personification of holiness. He was the only human being who never sinned, empowered as he was with the Holy Spirit, walking the earth. And when he came in contact with darkness, it was blown back. And you think of that passage in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And we think of that passage as being, here's the church, and the gates are thrashing on the church, but it won't win. And actually, it's just the opposite. As Jesus builds his church, wherever the gates of hell are, they're blown back. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the building and growth of Christ's church. And that's how it was when Jesus walked the earth. He was so holy... Filled with so much power that when he came into contact with darkness, it was blown back. Imagine what happens when our lives are filled with Jesus. So we've, we're taking these abstract ideas from centuries ago about Jesus in Capernaum, but what about our lives? Imagine if our lives are filled with Jesus. Imagine what will happen to our sin habits, the way we think about the world, the way we react towards our culture, images on the media and the internet. If our lives are filled up with Jesus, you know, when our lives are filled with him, the dark things are brought under the scrutinizing light of the holiness of God. The light of God's holiness and power, you know, shine the light on the darkness, And that's powerful. Now, if we love our sins um, more than we love him, or we're not ready to let go of our sins because we enjoy them too much, then we don't want more Jesus. So it's not just a simple transaction, yes, I want more Jesus, okay. One of the reasons we come together is to encourage each other in our love, For the person and work of Jesus as God's son. And when our love for Jesus grows, our love for our sins start to fade. Hopefully to the point where we hate our sins. Because we realize that it places a wedge between us and the lover of our soul, Jesus. That's really the point of Christian maturity. Growing in love for Jesus. And as you do, you hate your sins more and more. And the only way to battle those sin habits and those, those thought patterns is to fill your life up with more Jesus. I know we sound like religious nuts to the world, right? More Jesus. But that's exactly what we need. That's the prescription. It's not only the prescription for us. It's a prescription for the world. More Jesus. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So if you're trying to figure out well, why is it that people just won't receive Jesus, right? It seems like a good argument we can make for his, the historicity of the resurrection. Those aren't the issues. Those aren't really the issues. The issue is not intellectual rebellion. I just can't make sense of it with my mind because of blah, 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 blah. That's really not what's at the heart of people rejecting Jesus, Scripture tells us what's at the heart is that people love the darkness rather than the light. The demons recognize Jesus' purity as the Holy One of God and he cries out, have you come to destroy us? And this is an incredible statement because they realize that divine omnipotence, right? All power in the universe is invested in this person and that Jesus has the prerogative to end their existence if he chose to. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to end us? Is essentially what he's saying. That's what the word in the original language means, to destroy, to bring to an end, to cause, to cease to exist. And what's happening right here in this synagogue in Capernaum 2,000 years ago is a foretaste of Christian worship. We come into the house of God where God's people are gathered every Sunday because sound teaching confronts the powers of darkness in our lives. This synagogue scene with Jesus powerfully preaching is a foretaste of what happens for us when we come together and hear the word of God preached, it confronts darkness in our lives. It confronts the darkness. You know, Jesus doesn't go to the local Satan worshippers colony. I, you know, I don't know if they had one back then, but, you know, where all the, the rotten folks hang out, you know, listening to, I don't know, I don't know heavy metal or something like that. Um, no offense to those of you who like heavy metal, I'm just saying. Um, The demons are brought into conflict with Jesus right there in the synagogue. Now, this raises the question, something you might be thinking, can a believer be, be possessed by Satan? Well, there are certainly people who profess faith on the surface who have demons. But we would have to say from the testimony of the New Testament that there is no single place Where a true believer has Satan dwelling on the inside. And the reason for that is really simple. Because a true believer has been filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't share that space with a demon. Now true believers, those of us who have an authentic profession of faith. Filled with the Holy Spirit. We can certainly come under influence of the devil. We can come under the influence of the devil. There's no doubt about that. So... What this person's background was, we don't know. But we do know this. Jesus, in confronting darkness, often is brought into conflict with religious people. You see? He's a religious guy. He's in the Sabbath, but he's filled with a demon. There's not an authentic faith going on there, but he's a religious person. And that's also who Jesus came to do battle against is people who trust in their outward religiosity, people who trust in their symbols or their affiliations with, you know, this is a Presbyterian church, but, you know, and, and I am happily a Presbyterian, but that's, that's just a name. God's not a Presbyterian. He's not a Baptist or a Pentecostal, okay? So at no time should our denominational or doctrinal um, affiliations ever make us think that that's what makes us acceptable in God's sight. And finally, Jesus confronts demons by his power. His preaching brings him into conflict. His purity brings him into conflict. And his power brings him into conflict. And it's the exercising of his power that vanquishes the demons. And look what he says. But Jesus rebuked him, saying... Is it up there? We just got a blank screen. That's okay. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And this is where, not only is this Luke's first record, recorded miracle of Jesus, but this is where Jesus is, dis, Jesus distinguishes himself from any other, you know, ancient conjurer or miracle worker. One of the reasons we're not so pre- impressed today with this story is we've heard it a million times. And so it's not that fresh for us. We just assume, well, of course Jesus commanded the demon to come out. How else are demons exorcised? I mean, you know, that, that, would be our, that would be our response. Well, yeah, of course. That's, that's, that's how demons, you know get whooped. You know, Jesus just speaks a word and it happens. But in the ancient world, exorcism fell somewhere between magic and medicine. And Jews and non-Jews believed in magic. Um, But these healings often included, you know, potions and incantations and other aids that Jesus simply doesn't even have to use. He doesn't use them because he doesn't have to. Um, One ancient account by Lucian, a Syrian from Palestine, says that typically, in an exorcism, a large fee was charged, and the exorcists um, used anything from magic potions to incantations. But Jesus simply says this, Be silent and come out of him. And he does it for free. All he does is speak Simple, plain words with the authority of his power in, 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 a, in just a, a statement. Be silent and come out, and he does it for free. Jesus is going around healing people for free, casting out devils for free, transforming people's lives for free. This is, this is also something we take for granted, but in the ancient world... You had to pay for philosophers to come teach you. And even Paul in the book of Galatians uh, is struggling against the church who are paying for these super apostles to come and teach them. And this is this picture of grace. It's free. Jesus is saving people for free. It's not about money. It's not about profit. Ephesians 1 and 6 says, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the beloved. Romans 8:32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave up him for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? free it's free it's grace grace isn't earned it isn't paid for it's the gift of god and even the faith that we have is also a gift from god the bible says lest any man should boast we're saved by grace through faith and those are both gifts everything is a gift and it's a free gift from god just because he loves us so how do we confront demons? When I think about, you know, all right, how do you how do you think about wrapping this up and applying it to our lives and how should we go about, you know, confronting demons? And I just want to say in some sense we don't. Why? Because Jesus is the one who confronts demons for us. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to just completely be ignorant to the fact that there are demonic forces in the world. What I am saying, though, is to confront the devil, we're not using our words. It's Jesus' words. To vanquish the powers of darkness, there's nothing we have to do except have faith and confidence that the word of God and its promises and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 1 and 8, You receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That all of that is the work of God in our lives. And by believing and trusting, even when things are scary, right? Predicaments and circumstances arise that we don't know how to handle. We go to God in prayer. We read the word of God. We believe and trust in the word of God. We preach and speak the word of God. We're simply applying who Jesus is, his power over darkness, and what he said to every demonic force in the world. It's not our own power, it's his power. There's power in the word. And when you're up against whatever it is that confronts you this week or this year or what you've been struggling with, maybe for the past two years, the past decade, you have to know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, which means that all of hell's demons are not enough to conquer and overcome the one who is trusting and standing on the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the free grace that you gave us in Jesus, who conquered and conquers darkness and demons. We live in an age where people don't really believe in demons anymore. They have relegated that to the realm of superstition. But we know, O God, that our enemy goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but you protect us. That your son is the Lion of Judah, empowered with the Spirit on our behalf, protecting us and keeping us. Let us fill up our lives with Jesus. That we can also confront and battle against the forces of darkness because of what he's done and who he is. Lord, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.